Daniel chapter 8. Um, my, my guess is you've heard the saying that history has a way of repeating itself. Well, if you didn't know, that saying in many ways comes from the ancient Greeks. And the ancient Greeks believed that history was sort of on a loop. History had a way of playing itself out time and time again, and it would just repeat itself over and over and over again. History was a sort of pattern. Different actors would come, but the stage, even the set, basically the same pattern throughout all of histories. In many ways, we, we, we see this, right? We experience this, right? Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Presidents come, and then new presidents are elected. There's this like cycle, seasons as it were. I'm, I'm coaching my son's flag football team. First game, we won like 30 to 0. The next game, we lost 44 to 0. <laughs> then we won 38 to 6. Then we just lost on Saturday 30 to 6. I mean, it is like perfect illustration for this whole idea that history has a way of repeating itself. My guess is on Tuesday, we will win again. But, but, but if you look at seasons or if you look at life, we know that history repeats itself. You, you marry, you bury. Seasons change from fall to winter to spring to summer. You have seasons of joy, but then sort of lurking in the background, you always know that there's some sadness that inevitably will come. And so in many ways, wisdom, to be wise, to be mature, is in seeing the pattern of history, how how, how history sort of plays itself out, and then thinking through, what does it mean to conform to that pattern? Well, this fall, we're studying the book of Daniel. And today, we have another vision. It's a vision in a long line of visions, right? But as we've seen, there's, there's some patterns that are slowly starting to form. A sort of loop of history. A, a portrait of history. Particularly as it relates to God's people. And how God's people relate to the world. So if you want to be wise, to, to know how to be wise to live in this world with that, at the same way having such great expectations that everything's always going to go amazing... Or always being Eeyore and grumpy and saying everything's always going to be terrible. If you don't want to be on those extremes, then what does it look like to faithfully live in a world as we see these signs, these visions, this broader portrait of history? And that's what Daniel chapter 8 is going to teach us. Big idea is going to be behind me, which is simply this. Though there is a pattern to history, there is also a point to history. Today we're going to learn what that point is. Now, why I said we're going to be flipping around is the structure of chapter 8, it's it's really simple. You've got this vision that comes in the first half, and then, and we've seen this again, you have an angel that comes on the scene, none other than the angel Gabriel. He shows up, and he gives the interpretation. And so what we're going to do is, because there's these different Uh, visions, and they kind of jump from scene to scene, we're going to then jump to the interpretation and back and forth. So we're going to go back and forth from the dream to the interpretation, the dream to the interpretation, the vision and the interpretation, back and forth. So you'll be helped to have your Bibles 
open because we're going to jump around chapter 8. So, first, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. We'll stop there. That's the first vision, isn't it? So we open chapter 8, in some ways, a few years after the closing of chapter 7, right? It's, it's now year 3, not year 1, of the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, and his reign. We've, inter- we've uh, seen him before, haven't we? And just like in, in, previous, um, in the previous chapter, Daniel has a vision, And in this vision, he's transported. He's not literally going to um, Elam, to Susa. It's it's a little bit like a, like, think of Aladdin and the Magic Carpet Ride. That's the best way I can describe this, okay? So, So in this vision, Daniel gets on his Magic Carpet Ride, and he leaves Babylon and travels 200 miles east to the seat of power in the upcoming Persian Empire, which is Susa. And he's flying over the city, and then he lands eventually at a river, a canal. And as he lands, right, he, he disembarks this magic carpet ride in this vision. And he like, you know, like looking, and he's like, is that a ram I see, right? And he's trying to describe what he's seeing, right? And he sees this ram standing at the banks of this river with two large horns, One horn is bigger than the other. And this ram is charging north and south and west. It's charging all these different directions. And everywhere this ram goes, nothing can stop it. No one can stand in its way. Anything in its path, everyone in its path, this ram conquers. Now, remember, and I said this last week, this is apocalyptic. So this is more like a movie than a book. So A picture is worth a thousand words. And so we are in large part supposed to take this ram symbolically. It's going to point to something or someone. And thankfully, we got an angel, Gabriel himself, who's going to tell us what this ram symbolizes. So go to verse 15. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having an appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and he called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Thank you. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. And I fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he heard And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of indignation, 
for it refers to appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. We'll stop there. So this ram, symbolized with two horns, we're told, we don't have to guess at all, do we? The angel Gabriel tells us that this ram symbolizes and represents the empire of the Medo-Persian dynasty. And we know historically, and we're going to need to do some history every once in a while when we come to chapter 8 and and into future chapters of Daniel. We know that uh, when it comes to the Medo-Persians, that the Persian empire was stronger and bigger and came second. So there's a little horn, a bigger horn. The little horn is the Medes, and the bigger horn is the Persian empire. And we also know that when they came on the scene, when they started gathering power everywhere they went, every sort of nation and tribe that they touched, they conquered and no one could stop them. Remember, Daniel is writing this in the, the, the pinnacle of Babylonian empire. And so you have this growing kind of dynasty, the Medo-Persians, and it's growing and it's growing And so here we have a reminder that soon Babylon will fall to this ram-like kingdom. But just as Daniel is describing this this impressive ram, there's another beast that comes. Go to verse 5. As I was considering this ram, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with his two horns, which I had seen standing on the banks of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So here's the second image. We've got this goat that comes in prancing along, almost as if I visually imagine this like a, like a Patronus spell, right? He's not even touching the, the ground, is he? This goat comes in, And this goat has a horn, a huge horn between its eyes. And then eventually, right, this horn sees this ram and just charges with a ferocity, just like with utter wrath, and it's ferocious, and this ram has nowhere to go, and no one's coming to its rescue, and it tramples the ram under its foot. And then as, you know, as Daniel's looking at this and he sees his horn and, and victory and it's and victory in all directions, just as that happens, the horn in the middle of this goat, it crumbles, it splits, it breaks. And out of this comes four small horns. Now, just like the ram, you're like, this is confusing. I have no idea what this is. Um, I mean, I grew up in the city. I can spell goat, but that's about it. So I have no idea what this is talking about. Well, thankfully... Go to verse 21. We've got an angelic interpreter. Verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. 
As for the horn that was broken in place, oh, we'll stop there. Actually, we'll do this. Um, As for the horn that was broken in place of which the four other arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, from this nation, but not with his power. So, that first ram we know is the Medo-Persian Empire, Gabriel tells us, and now here we know that this goat is none other than the kingdom of Greece and the king of Greece. And we know that this horn, this great horn, is the greatest of all Grecian kings. And if you studied history, if you remember back in high school, who is that great king? Alexander the Great. Um, I I recently read a a biography of Alexander the Great, and he, I mean, I know he's a goat, but he might have been the goat, right? The greatest of all time. This guy was impressive. And, um, you know, he, he, before William Wallace and everything, he would charge out. He wouldn't sit on the sidelines. He'd charge out with his men. Um, I I also read that that he had this interesting tactic that that when he was fighting um, another, you know, another nation— you know, he, he would look for the strongest, most fortified area of the line. And most commanders would say, all right, we're going to look for the weak area, the weak link, and attack the weak link. He's like, nah, nah, nah not us. We're going to find the strongest, most fortified area of our enemy, and that's where we're going to attack. Because once we attack and we win, their morale is going to be so, so depleted that they're just going to give up. And it worked. That's what they would do. He was amazing. And pretty much everywhere where Alexander touched, they just conquered. Conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered. In 334 BC, the goat, he turned his eyes to Persia and he attacked. Now, this, this, this is, he had 35,000 men. That's how big Alexander's army was. 35,000 men. And he's fighting the Medo-Persian army that had 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen. Now, I'm not saying that we should be a betting man, but if you are, that's a big army and a smaller army. Who's going to win? Well, history writes that Alexander and his army killed 20,000 soldiers from the Persian Empire and only lost, and I almost don't even believe this, okay, only lost 100 men in that. It's almost too amazing to believe. But... By 331, Alexander conquered Persia and pretty much everywhere that those men, that kingdom, it just was advancing. No one was getting in its way. But remember, you've got this goat, this great, this great horn that comes out, but it splits, it breaks. If you know your history, you know at 33 years old, Alexander dies. And what happens? He splits up the kingdom to four kings. Represented in our, um, in our text by four horns kind of bursting out of that one horn. Now, what does this teach us, right? This is great, but this, this is amazing when you think about it. Like God's word is this specifically, prophetically um, true. I mean, that, that, that's amazing. That's an application. Like God's word can be trusted when it comes to the history books. But I think the, the more impactful and the that the simpler application for us is that this is a reminder time and time again that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. We're going to see four patterns arising, and this really is the first pattern. Kingdoms come 
They rise. They have power. They have influence. They take over. And then they fall. Kingdoms are a bit like cars. You buy them. They work for a while. They're great. They have power. And then eventually they break down. You need to repair them. And eventually no one's really driving a 1960s car, right? Unless you're Brett Lewis, right? <laughs> kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. But, but we also see that, that whereas in chapter 7, the, kind of, the, 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 the bullseye seems to be on kingdoms, this with its talk about horns and Alexander and these other kings, and we're going to see in a second that there's another little horn that's going to come out of these four kingdoms, that in some ways this is talking about kings and kingly power and kingly influence. And it's a reminder to us that power comes, influence comes, men and women can rise to power, but just as much as they can rise to power, they can fall. I mean, it... It took 15 years. Some of you know this story. It took 15 years for Mars Hill Church up in Seattle to become, in one sense, the most powerful, influential church maybe in America. It took one week to have it crumble. Daniel rises to power. We've seen this in the book of Daniel. He rises to power. One of the most powerful men with power and influence. And as the power is kind of garnered by Daniel, all of a sudden, in one second, he's thrown into a den full of lions. Power. Now, don't get me wrong. It's wonderful and fine to want to be ambitious and want to work up the corporate ladder. It's great to to want to to grow and to get uh, a better job. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you seek power... When you seek influence for its own sake, I think this is a cautionary tale for us. Power comes, power goes. Influence rises and influence goes. The question is, what do you do with that power? What do you do with that influence? Because all of us have power. All of us have influence. If you're a parent, you've got power and influence over your kids. If you're a grandparent, aunt, uncle, friend, you have influence on your grandchildren, on your nieces, your nephews, on your friends. If you work for a company and there's anyone who reports to you, you have power and influence. You go on and on and on. The question is, what do you do with your power? What do you do with your influence? I think in many ways the model of this is Jesus, isn't it? Jesus who has more power than anyone ever. He is the God of the universe in human form. And what does he do with his power? He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. If you want to see what power does, look at the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about what Christ did with power, which is he died to the powers that be, and he died to ransom a people for himself. And so the question for us today, I think, as we look at these horns, as we look at these kingdoms that come and we go, the question is, how do we use whatever power and influence God has given you in this, in this season? What do you do with it? And how do you serve? How do you use your power and influence to serve, to, to build people up? Elders, I think there's an application for us, right? Right? 
You know, it, it, one, of the, one of the kind of qualifications of an elder is that you don't do this for selfish gain. So how do you use even the influence and power of being an elder, a leader, and use it to build up others? We have a negative example here with the ram and the goat. They rose to power, clung for power and influence, but though they are richly talked about in history books, their kingdoms have fallen apart. That's the first pattern. Kingdoms, kings, power, influence, they come and they go. That's the first pattern. But there's a second pattern. Look at verse 9. Second pattern, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. The second pattern is God's people on this kind of historic loop, God's people are attacked. Verse 9. Out of one of them, remember one of these four horns, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. The south, toward, uh, toward the south, toward the east, towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the uh, even it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Verse twelve, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will be thrown. Uh, it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So here we, we have this little horn that grows out of these four kingdoms, these four kings. And this little horn prospers. This little horn, if, if you remember from chapter 7, is different than the little horn of chapter 7. That horn came out of the last kingdom. This is coming out of the third kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. So this is a different little horn that's talked about. Well, this king, this little horn, becomes great, doesn't he? Powerful. He goes to the west, goes to the east, and then he turns his sight to the glorious land. And I think you know, you don't need an angelic interpreter to know what the glorious land is. That's God's country. That's Jerusalem. He attacks the host of heaven, the stars, the prince of hosts. We're going to explain what that is in a moment. But then verse 11 tells us that this little horn, he's going to stop worship. Did you see that? He's going to stop sacrifices. He's going to throw truth to the ground and trample on it like the goat trampled on the Medo-Persian army. Now again, though this little horn is going to prosper, the question is, what does this little horn vision symbolize or mean? Well, once again, thankfully, go to verse 23. Verse 23, Gabriel explains this vision and says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. 
and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So here in this vision, we've got this little horn that attacks the host and then throws down stars. Now, Gabriel gives us our interpretation. This little horn is described as a king once again. And he is said to, in verse 24, it says he attacks God's people. And so we're meant to attach God's people with this host and these stars. So when he talks about that, that, that this little horn is going to attack this host and these stars, that's supposed to correlate to God's people. And this shouldn't surprise us because in the Old Testament, stars and host are both described a, a few places. They're just um, words or metaphors or descriptions or images for God's people. And even in Daniel chapter 12, at the end of Daniel, uh, Daniel uses stars as a synonym for God's people. I'll, I'll read it to you so you see. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says, Those who are led to many righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever. So God's people are the host. God's people, the saints of the Most High, are the host. And so... Who then is this prince of princes? Or who is this prince of hosts? Well, if the host is God's people, God's saints, then the prince of princes or the prince of hosts is God himself. That seems clear. And so what this is telling us is that this coming little horn, this coming king, is going to rise to prominence out of these four kingdoms that Greece is going to be divided into. And he's going to attack God's people, and he's going to attack God. He's going to set his attention, his energies, against the glorious land, against the worship of God's people, and against God himself. And so you might wonder, who is this? Who did this? What king rose to power and did this very thing? Well, we know from the history book who this is. It's Antiochus Epiphanes. He even calls himself Epiphanes, meaning manifestation of God. I mean, that's how arrogant this man was. He came to power in the second century, and in one, one three-day stretch, as he turned his attention to Jerusalem, he slaughtered 40,000 men, women, and children. In 167 BC, he ordered the stop of all sacrifices in the temple. Then he went in, and he said, instead, we are going to have this altar that was meant for the true God, and we're going to have this altar, and we're going to desecrate it and worship Zeus. And then he took a pig, an unclean animal, and sacrificed it to Zeus. Do you see why it's called an abomination of desecration? It literally was desecrated by this abominable act of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we see the pattern again and again. Here comes this king, and he rises to power, and eventually he turns his attention to God and his people. And we also see a sort of subplot, a sub-pattern that we've seen that you can't read the Bible and not see, but it, it makes me just want to point it out so you don't see it. Look there in verse 12. Like, why does this happen? Like, why did this happen? Verse 12 tells us why this happened. It says, because of wickedness, the host, that's God's people, was given over to a little, that's a little horn, 
was given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings. If you go down to verse 23, it talks about transgressing, transgressors reaching their limit. So why did this happen? Sin, idolatry, wickedness. God is saying that, 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 that they were handed over for a season, God's people were, to this little horn, which is Antiochus, because of their sin, because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry. And this happened. If you read the book of Maccabees, which is not in your Bible, but you can read it. It's, it's a historic account of what was going on in this very season in God's people's life. You realize that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, many people, many Jewish people, many people in God's family decided, we're not going to, we're going to go with this Grecian empire. We're not going to practice Passover or the Sabbath. We're, we're going to worship other gods. They caved in the midst of it. It's detailed in, in, in great detail about how this happened. And so here we have this repeated theme. Daniel, remember, he's getting this vision in real time in Babylon. And why are God's people in Babylon? Because of their sin, their idolatry, their wickedness. They broke the covenant. And now he sees a couple hundred years into the future And he sees a pattern emerging. Another kingdom is going to come. And God's people are once again going to break the covenant. And the suffering that's going to come on them is going to be because of God's chastisement for their wickedness. They, in many ways, forgot that God fights for them. This whole idea of prince and host, it's like fighting words. This is God's, like, fighting language. This is saying God fights for his people and they had forgotten that God fights for them. Which in many ways happens. In the midst of hardship and suffering and trials, generally speaking, and I've seen this time and time again, generally speaking, experientially speaking, one of two things happen. You either go deeper into your relationship with God or you run from God. You either deepen your worship of God or you reject God. And Antiochus, as, he's, as his reign of terror was coming upon, you had a mixed bag. Some were going deeper into their relationship with God, trusting that God was going to serve them and love them and protect them and be with them in the midst of all of this. And others said, well, I can't beat them. Join them. They'd forgotten that God fights for them. And so, in many ways, Antiochus is a type. The New Testament is going to use this language of antichrist, right? Any figure who is anti against Christ and his people. And so, Antiochus is just an example of someone who stands in opposition to God and his people. And we know from 1 John that there's going to be a lot of them. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive, First John tells us. And then Revelation seems to hint at that there's going to be an ultimate manifestation of this Antichrist. But nevertheless, we're reminded of this consistent pattern. People rise to power. Kings and kingdoms rise to power. Influential people come and they go. But inevitably, and time and time again, in all of history, 
This is why we're studying church history in the men's Bible study. Because inevitably, people turn their attention to the glorious land or the glorious people, to the saints of the Most High. And I want you to be, Daniel wants us to be ready for it. That's what this vision is for. It's meant to tell Daniel, you need to persevere. This is the pattern. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, and they will bite. You need to be sober-minded about all of this. And so do we. That's the second pattern. But there's a third pattern. And that is that God will not allow this destruction, this attack, or these attacks to go on forever. Look there in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who said, for for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So there's like this, and angels, they're, they're like hanging out in this vision, and they ask the million-dollar question, don't they? How long is this suffering going to happen? Like, how long is Antiochus going to persecute God's people there in Jerusalem? When will it all come to its end? Will it just go on forever? Will, will he win? Will he just stamp out God's people? Let me get our answer, don't we? For 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, a lot of debate on this number, okay? But there's a couple ways you can interpret this, okay? If you take it that this is talking about days, then it's about seven years. And so he's saying, for just short of seven years, Antiochus is going to reign his terror, and there's going to be no sacrifices at the altar. There's going to be no temple worship. And then, after about seven years, then God will restore worship of God's people in the temple of God. Or, since we're talking about sacrifices, okay, it could be talking about morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices. And so this number, if you want to figure out the years, you have to take the number and divide it by two, right? Morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening. And so then the number would be about three and a half years to say that for three and a half years that all the sacrifices are going to stop. Now, there's debate, even historical debate, on how long either of them could be true. And I don't think it really matters. Because what's so comforting to us and to Daniel is that there was an end to it. Whether it's three and a half years or just short of seven years, God will restore his worship. God would judge Antiochus. And that did happen. Look down at verse 25. Verse 25 talks about that, 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 that this, the prince of princes, he shall be broken, shall be rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. That's this little horn, but by no human horn, hands. That happened to Antiochus. He was not killed by the sword, by any human. He died mysteriously from some illness in his sleep. He died from no human hand. So verse 14 concludes that when this happens, after this allotted period of time, God's going to restore worship. He's going to restore his people. And he's going to do so at the end of days. That end of days, we just assume that means the the end of everything, Christ's second coming, but, but that end of days is attached to the end of this 
persecution. So just think about it. Daniel's in Babylon. He can't foresee Greece, but there you have it. And when he explained this vision in verse 24, look at how Daniel responds. Or sorry, verse 27. Verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Daniel has this vision, has the interpretation of this vision, and he lays in bed, and he's not getting out of bed, is he? Why? Why is he so heartsick? Sad? Well, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Daniel's in Babylon, exiled, God's people being exiled because of their transgressions, because they broke the covenant. But he knows that in about 70 years, and time is ticking, he's go, God promised that he's going to restore his people back into the land. And so now he gets a hint, the first hint, that, the, that this is going to happen, that, that people are going to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, rebuild the altar. He gets the first hint of it, and what does he learn? That it's going to become desolate once again, and that someone's going to sacrifice a pig on it, and it's all going to come crashing down. Do you see how discouraging this is? He's like, we're going to go back. We just got to get through this period. You, you all do this, right? You're just like, I got to get through this next quarter, and then we're going to Hawaii. I just got to And then, then the hurricane comes, and you're like, dang it. Why did I put my hope in, in Hawaii, right? And then you just do it over again. That's Daniel. He's in Babylon. He's like, I just got to get through these 70 years, and then we'll be back in paradise. God's going to usher in his kingdom. Everything's going to go great. And then he gets this vision, and then it's like, oh. What comes around goes around. History has a way of repeating itself. Why we're here is why we're going to be there. God is going to restore his people, but then it's not all going to go well for God's people. See, human history has this repeated cycle, doesn't it? God's people sin. We need to be judged for sin. And God uses all sorts of means to that end. So how do you stop the endless loop of history. Well, after Greece, another kingdom came, rose to power. We, we read of that in chapter 7 and chapter 2, kingdom of Rome. It swept the world, and God's people seemed to forget the past. And they began to worship in that time as if temple worship was a carnival. Sin always needs its, a new outlet. And a new king rose to power, And what do they do? They turn their attention on God's people, even trying to murder all children under two. Jesus has to flee, and his family has to flee to Egypt to escape the king. Doesn't get any better when the expiration of this edict comes. God's people keep getting persecuted. And eventually, Jesus himself, for just... Living life faithfully is eventually going to get executed, isn't he? He's going to suffer at the hands of another tyrant, not Antiochus, but Pontius Pilate. See, Daniel 8 has a way of just repeating itself over and over and over and over again. But it doesn't just end with Christ dying for sinners, rising for the grave. Right before Jesus would die in Matthew 24, verse 15, he says these words to us. He says these words to the church. Verse 15 of Matthew 24. Just listen to these. 
See if you can see the the loop that's similar to Daniel 8 that is for the church age. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, he's even connecting Daniel 8 with what he's about to say. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let those who are on the housetop not go down to take what is in their house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if in those days that has not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Endless pattern and hoop. Loop. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying whether it's Nero who's going to destroy the temple in AD 70 or the endless number of kings that would come and attack God's people in the early church or you just keep reading. There are all of these people that will keep on coming for God's people. He's saying you need to persevere. You need to be sober. You need to understand the history of the world, the pattern of this world. The kingdoms come and they go. Eventually they turn their attention to God's people. But, did you see that? I will cut day down the days they will be short, meaning God will preserve his people. God will preserve his people. And the days are short as it relates to evil and Satan and the Antichrist who have come, who are here, and who will come. And the great manifestation of that at the end of the day, their days are counted, numbered, and short. So the wise need to take all of this into heart. But just real quick, there's one more pattern. It's sort of the, the last pattern and the, the, the wonderfully encouraging application for us. Look, look, look just in one verse, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome. I lay sick for some days, but then look what happened. Then I rose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So he's shocked. But after a period of being shocked, what does he do? He puts on his work clothes and goes to the office. Daniel doesn't understand everything, right? He has no idea how to make sense of Greece. He's like, who's Greece, right? Never heard of Greece, right? Of course he hadn't, right? This is years in the future. So there's lots of things that he's like scratching his head about. But one thing he does know, he's got work to do. This is not a passive, you know, Pollyanna like, okay, well, let's just let it all burn. Let's just sit. That's not, Daniel gets up and says, I got work to do. God sent me here to Babylon to do work. He said, seek the prosperity of the city that I send you. And in their prosperity is your prosperity. Get up, work, you got things to do. Isn't that what Jesus says? Even in the midst of this tribulation, he says, hey church, get up, you got work to do. Go make disciples. Go preach the gospel to the nations. Get jobs, change diapers, love your spouse, marry bury, live your lives, get jobs, pay taxes. Do all these sorts of things. Love your community. Serve your community. Be on boards. We've got work to do. Daniel knew he had work to do. This, This whole vision 
of this world and how it put together, it did not mean that he just sat on the sideline and said, well, what does it matter? This is no fatalism. This is, oh, in light of all this, I'm going to be faithful with what God has put before me. I'm going to work hard, do the work of an evangelist, do the work of a discipler. I'm going to seek the prosperity of my city. I'm going to be a good neighbor, love them. I'm going to ask questions about them. I'm going to be the best mom, the best nurse, the best firefighter I could be. All those are noble and glorious things. I'm going to do all of it. Why? Because I know that it's not pointless. That history, though it might have a pattern and a sort of loop to it, it's got an arrow to it as well. It's pointing in a direction, which is that Christ is going to return and defeat it all. Sin, Satan, suffering, evil, and then usher in the kingdom to come. History has that point to it, an end. And so all the things that we do, all the gardens we till and the trees we plant, it has a purpose, it has an end. It's all good and it's noble because God is slowly building his kingdom. The gates of hell cannot come against her because her days are short. So, that's the pattern. In four simple movements. Kingdoms come, kingdoms come, and kingdoms go. They eventually turn their attention and attack God's people. Pattern number three, their days are short. Pattern four, let's get to work. I don't exactly know what that is for our church and for you, but I do know that God has prepared in advance good works for you to do and accomplish. And it doesn't have to be outrageous, like moving to Iran, as we prayed about earlier. It can be as simple as joyfully changing a diaper, going to work and being on time, encouraging a coworker. Get to work. We got things to do. God's kingdom's advancing for our joy, for our joy and his glory. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for a reminder of that this is a broken world, and yet in the midst of all this, you are remaking it. And foremost, I see how you're remaking it when I see the faces of the men, women, and children in this church. The stories, how you're remaking our lives, how you're helping us to to forgive those who hurt us, how, how you've made us more gentle and kind and loving and sacrificial and generous. Lord, we pray that you would use us, that you would send us and remind us of the great mission that you've provided for us, that we, like Daniel, would get up and do the work that you put before us. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.